Uh, welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Benedita Souza. She's, uh, uh, she's the founder of BeyondBinging.co.uk, and she helps empower women get over, not get over, that, that's, that sounds so dismissive. She helps women who struggle with binge eating and other eating disorders. Uh, Benedita Souza, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. How are you today? Hi, Leo. Thank you so much. I am very good. I'm very uh, happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for the wonderful introduction. And uh, yeah, it's not getting over binge eating because uh, like you said, it's uh, it's a lot more than that. So thank you so much for uh, uh, adding another level because um, binge eating is an eating disorder like many other eating disorders and uh, it needs to be addressed with uh, seriousness and with um, a firm pulse, I would say. Absolutely. There's, there's so much research out there um, and not enough research, I should say, about the link between binge eating and eating disorders and suicidality. Uh, I, I just was just reading a report about um, the, the high prevalence of suicidality in people, in those individuals who have binge eating disorders. And I know that from your bio that you shared with me, that you too have struggled with depression, anxiety, and um, uh, have had multiple suicide attempts in your history. Did you want to share more on that? Yes, thank you so much, Leo, for um, starting with this topic, because that's one of my favorite topics to talk about. Um, the, the issue with binge eating is most people don't understand what binge eating is. They just think we eat a bit too much more than we actually need or we are a bit, uh, um, what do we call, we lose a little bit control on what we're eating, the quantities we eat. And, um, and because let's say that the external signs of being a binge eater are either zero or we, we have put on weight. We're a bit uh, onto the large side, size or obese. So when someone looks at a binge eater, there is nothing externally showing that we are struggling with some binge eating disorder. Uh, we either don't have any signs because uh, like myself, many people out there um, are binge eaters, but are not overweight, have a normal weight. We are kind of normal. We might feel like we are not fit enough or we might feel like we need to be fitter or slimmer, blah, 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 but we are not overweight or obese. And then there is a lot of people out there suffering with binge eating that are actually onto the obese or overweight uh, scale of the, um, of the scale, basically. Um, so, and so when people look at us, binge eaters, they don't really see that there is this problem. So then that uh, um, intensifies the loneliness, the not being understood, and the be being misunderstand misunderstood, right? Um, so then we just close ourselves even more into our little world because being binge eater, it's quite um, shameful. We are ashamed. We feel bad about what we do. 
plus on the top of that we are just either misunderstood or we are just called fat obese you just need to do a diet because you have some extra kilos or you just need to be less greedy with the food and you just need to eat less mcdonald's or less chocolate and that's it and um, and we get into this spiral of not being understood and you know it's not just general people like you know friends or family or colleagues at work but it's also doctors and therapists because it is not something that it's easy to diagnose you know a bit like um, now with depression and so on, it's a bit easier. But a few years back, even depression was not something so easy to diagnose because people would, pro doctors would say, you know, maybe you just need a rest. You just need to work less. You just need to sleep more. But now we're starting to understand these things a bit more. With binge eating, there's still a very huge lack of understanding or diagnosing or uh, ability to uh, diagnose that there is a binge eating disorder, that there is really a problem of addiction to food or completely out of control with food or that there is something underlying the binge eating. Um, most of the time, doctors and therapists will go down the route of, well, let's start with a diet. Let's start with some exercise. Let's start with some, uh, um, uh, I don't know, physical exercise. You know, let's start by just uh, uh, touching some ten, certain areas of our lives. And, uh, and during all that time that we are trying to figure out whether we need to do more exercise or maybe we need to do a diet or maybe we need to uh, do something else, we're still binging. We're still punishing ourselves. We're still self-harming because binge eating is a way of self-harming. And that takes me to the other bit, which is depression. Anxiety, depression, they go hand in hand. For me, my huge, huge thing was depression. And it took me, took me to, to such a deep, deep, dark place that I didn't want to live in this world anymore. And I tried to leave this world a few times. And, it, and, and that, the binge eating, gets to a point that we don't see a way out anymore. We've tried everything, nothing works. We are knocking on doors asking for help, but no one can help us. And it's... When we are at that stage where we knocking on doors, whether it's GPs or therapists or um, uh, friends or family or someone, when we're knocking on doors, we are already most likely either depressive or suffering from high levels of anxiety. So there we are already at the point where we need desperately help, but unfortunately healthcare system it's still not there prepared, you know. I was just uh, the other day listening to um, uh, an artist here in the UK that lost his uh, brother to suicide. And same thing, he had several suicide attempts, knocking on, on the doctor's door, help me, help me, help me. They can't do anything. They have to send people home. And then unfortunately, um, if, uh, a while later, he ended up taking his life, and that's it. He was he's gone now, and so we are. It's a really difficult time because we are at that stage where the health system is doing the best they can with what they know, with the resources they have. Um, but unfortunately, the society is living with a twenty first century problem 
that the health system has not yet progressed in terms of education, in terms of training, in terms of facility, in terms of accommodating this problem to help us. And that's what happened to me. I was not good enough to go to work. I was not good enough to be a functional human being, but I was not bad enough to go into a psychiatric hospital and to have someone overseeing me 24 hours. So we have we are left with the gap of people suffering in the middle with panic attacks, with anxiety, with depression, with sometimes just being lost, not having a clue what, what's going on. Why am I feeling this way? I cannot go to work. I'm crying all the time or I'm feeling uh, uh, unhappy all the time. What do I do? And unfortunately, the health system is not able to help these people in the middle. And hopefully me and you know other colleagues that are helping people in these situations will um, fill up the gap, you know, will we'll help these people in this gap. Wow, there's so many things that you shared that I want to highlight. And, and so I, I want to peel back uh, the layers uh, just a little bit. You know, in the beginning when you talked about that so many people who binge eat don't look like they're binge eaters because they do present as being in great shape. I, I got that all the time from my friends of like, what? Because they, when they find out that I'm in uh, a sugar and carb addictions group, they, they're often shocked and surprised because they, they've always known me to work out and be active. But, you know, the part that they didn't see was that I was constantly trying to stay ahead of my binge eating. You know, I would eat pints of ice cream and cookies and, and donuts and and then go hike, you know, for three hours and then yeah. take a kickboxing class and then take a hot yoga class. Like I, I, my, my a whole Saturdays are just filled up with training all morning and then just binge eating the rest of the day away. And And then, you know, as you get older, and the injuries, you know, my body just wasn't able to recover fast enough for me to outrun. I couldn't outrun the binge eating. So now I have to do the internal work of managing my loneliness, managing my shame, managing the hurt and the guilt. And I, I'm still struggling with it. You know, I had a little binge yesterday. And, and so I think that you highlight something that's so valuable in that the people who are suffering in the middle do feel isolated and do feel lonely because like you said, it's not so bad that people are alarmed by it and that you're getting the support from friends, family, and in society. And, uh, but it's not so good that, uh, you're able to feel like you can function, function, uh, optimally. So you're, you're stuck in the middle. What for you, uh, when your first suicide attempt, what was going on? For you, was it around food? Was it around family? Did you feel like a burden? What was happening for you? For me, it was the desperation of what's the point? I'm not happy. I can find I, I couldn't find a partner. I was struggling with binge eating. I would have I was very good at work, but I was also a very angry person. And I had a lot of problems with colleagues and my managers sometimes struggled to keep the peace because whilst they wanted to keep me because I was really good, they struggled because I was always in conflict with others. 
especially with colleagues. And uh, and so and then an accumulation of lots of years of feeling disappointed, regret of things I've done, taking drugs, taking doing crazy things that you know you look back and like oh my god what the hell did I do and so I had an accumulation of feeling shitty feeling crap and of course the binge was just a way to numb that out yeah the binge was for me always a way of filling up the loneliness filling up that I was not loved feeling up that I would never be good enough for anything in life, no matter how hard I tried, all of those things. And the problem with, um, with binge eaters is that we, are with, we, are, we have a mentality of all or nothing. Like you said, eat a lot and then go and do lots of exercise and try to kill all the tubs of uh, ice cream you ate and so on. So my life had always been like this. I either I'm super happy and I do very well at work, blah, blah, blah. And then other areas of my life, they are just shit. I feel lonely. I don't have friends. I can't have a I can't find a partner. There's no guy that sticks with me for more than a month, blah, blah, blah. You know, all of those things. And um, and that's what led me to the point of desperation and falling on my knees one day in my uh, manager's office with my head in my hands, falling on my knees and saying, I just cannot handle, I don't know what's going on with me. I was crying, crying. And then he ended up sending me home by by taxi because I was just down. That's it. The, the, my system, my spirit, my soul, whatever, knocked on the door and said, look, we've been giving you signs for you to look into this. You keep ignoring it, keep ignoring it. You keep numbing it down with food. You keep taking drugs to forget about blah, blah, blah. Now that's it. We are not letting you move until you look into this. And then that's when I uh, was at home, locked at home for many months, didn't want to leave the house. And then I started getting out of the house and looking for help because the pills they gave me were not doing anything. I was not feeling any better. And then that's when the frustration of not finding help led me to wanting to disappear because I was like, no one can help me. What's the point? And then I was just feeling more and more lonely because I couldn't find the help. I couldn't fix myself. I couldn't figure out a way out. And just feeling like no light at the end of the tunnel. tunnel. If there is no light at the end of the tunnel, what's the point of leaving? I might as well not be here because what's the point where are you from originally and where are your parents from yeah so i'm originally from portugal my parents are also portuguese and um and i came to the uk when i was 23 um just out of some uh quite uh spontaneous decision that portugal was I was feeling claustrophobic in Portugal. I wanted to progress and I couldn't feel find a way, blah, blah, blah. So I came to this country and then I stayed. <laughs> well, uh, it's interesting because uh, Portugal is one of those places that I actually want to visit uh, because, you know, it's been romanticized as, you know, the coffee shops and it's very melancholic. And 
uh, the, the idea of Sadaude. Is it Sadaude or is it, what, what's the word? S A U D A D E? Sodade. Oh, can, can, you, can you share a little bit of, of what that is? Yeah. So, Sadade is an emotion, is a feeling that it's like when you miss someone. But Sodade, you, so other, the other language don't have a translation for the word so that. So like in English, you say, I miss you, Leo, I miss you, or I miss the life I had before. And you use the same word, miss, for lots of things. Oh, I miss the bus. <laughs> I miss our call. Yeah. And, uh, but in Portuguese, no. In Portuguese, we have the word saudade, which is just for emotion. And then what happens in the history of fado, fado which is a very typical Portuguese type of uh, singing song, um, fado incorporated the word saudade a lot, melancholic, uh, this missing uh, the Portuguese uh, life or missing the smile of someone or missing someone. And um, so, so that was very used in these kind of songs because it represents the emotion of missing something, someone, not something, someone. Well, I ask that because it, it seems that when I think about Portugal and like I've never been there, I think of people who um, kind of relish their emotions, the emotional yeah. landscape and, and marinate in it and, 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 um, uh, it's something to, to be emotional is is to be acceptable. Where like when I think about the American way, it's it's about stoicism and you know not you know keeping your cards close to your chest and and not showing any vulnerability. Did you feel growing up that you were able to share your emotions with your family? And what was that experience like? How did your parents respond to your signs of distress? Yeah, so great question. And I'm going to answer to your question about, you know, me growing up, but I want to go back to what you were talking about, you know, Portuguese people, emotion and so on, because that's a really great point. Okay, so um, I was quite comfortable in showing my emotions in a way. Um, we are quite open in Portugal in terms of being open and so on. We have this uh, a costume of just having open doors and open windows and coming into my house, no problem, blah, 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 and speaking our minds and so on. Um, the, the problem was, or is for most of us, is the ideas that we start to get when we are young. And I used to be told when I was young that I was the black sheep in the family and that I was found in the rubbish bin somewhere in the middle of the street. They found me. And because I had blonde hair, no one in my family had blonde hair. So I must have been found in the bin because I was definitely not part of the family because I was so rebellious and so blah, 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 and so confident, la, la, la. Uh, and I was so different. And there was a bit of this going on constantly uh, when I was growing up. So there was a side of me that, oh, and something else. I, I, I was a, a child that uh, did a wee in the bed, you know, wee wee in the bed, pee pee in the bed until quite late. I don't know. I think I was like eight, nine years old. So I was criticized at home a lot for 
not growing out of that, you know, still being quite a, an older child and still doing that. Um, so from a very young age, I started feeling different and I started feeling like I can't say too much because I'm going to cre be criticized. I can't cry because they're going to call me weak. I, uh, I can't play too much because they're going to say I'm too loud. I can't be too confident because they're going to say that I'm too this or too that. And especially because uh, my father was quite um, favorite of me. So you, we, we get along very well, me and my father. And then my mom and my brother and my sister were very close. So there was a clear division between me and my father, my brother and my sister, which then started to create a bit of resentment because my father was quite violent and he would not be violent towards me, but he would be violent towards my mom, um, my mom, my sister, my brother, and so on. And then my brother, my sister would resent me because I would never be punished and they would be punished. So, so then there's a very difficult dynamic in all of this. So with the time, I started uh, keeping a bit my emotions more inside because of that. My father was, you know, a typical man of his generation, wouldn't show emotion, was very aggressive, was very like, let's work, 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 you know, this kind of thing. My mom was a bit more loving and caring, but she kept more the love for my brother and my sister because she felt that they didn't receive enough love because they were a bit the victims of my father. So dynamic was really difficult. And, um, but now when I look back, I felt lonely from the very, very beginning. And I never really understood. I, I had image, I have images of me standing in my uh, parents' window, looking out of the window, and, and crying and feeling lonely and not knowing why. And, um, and, the, and my parents always had their own businesses. And when my brother and sister would go and work with them and I was still too young to go, I would stay at home alone. So I was probably seven, eight, nine years old, 10 years old. I would stay at home alone. And I would feel really lonely. I remember feeling really lonely. I couldn't have my neighbors coming to play with, uh, with me. And I would turn to food. I would look for... Uh, biscuits, anything, just because I was bored and I was feeling lonely. And then with the time uh, after my depression, when I started doing some work and understanding why I, I went through that, I understood that my mom, my mom never really wanted me. When she knew I would, when she knew she was pregnant for, of me, she didn't want, she cried, she wanted to abort, but they didn't allow her and all of that. And later on, I, I, I've learned she didn't want me because she had two really difficult pregnancies with my brother and my sister. My brother was super heavy. My mom had to work until the last day and she couldn't handle. She had uh, my sister the year after she had my brother and the year after she was going to have me. Three pregnancies very close to each other. And my mom almost died from my brother's pregnancy. So she was scared of dying from, my, uh, from being pregnant with me. On the top of that, her father said to her, if you get pregnant again, you will not enter my house anymore. You know, for them it was a bit like, you know, you just got married or already having three kids, you know, uh, people living in the countryside in Portugal don't understand some of these things, blah, blah, blah. So 
So there was a lot of influence and there was a lot of negativity around my mom being pregnant a third time, third kid in three years and all of this. And also my grandparents already knew my father was a violent man and there was already some difficult things between my grandparents and my father and so on. So I grew up inside of my mom's womb, not being wanted, not being loved. And now I understand that that grew up in my body, in my cells, in my feelings, my whole life until I understood, until I clearly understood and I had a conversation with my mom and I heard from her what happened and all of those things. And um, and, and that was like, like freedom. like understanding where sometimes my you know I did a lot of one night stands when I was at my lowest point and I'm not embarrassed of saying because I know a lot of people do that because I I needed people and I wanted to be loved I just wanted to be loved so I was trying to to find a guy you know so you do these crazy things and I have I'm not embarrassed of saying this because when you we get to certain low points we do anything whether that's taking drugs whether that's binge eating whether that's one night stands whether that's you know sleeping outside whatever it is lie we do crazy things with the need of wanting to be loved and that for me was great too. I hope I answered your question. It was a bit kind of a lot of information. You know what? You answered it wonderfully. And it actually brought up almost tears to my eyes because then it made me think about my childhood and some of the things that I experienced. Um, uh, you know, I've, you know, I might have some new listeners on this episode, but, you know, when I was nine years old, I told my mom that I wanted to end my life. And, um, looking back, I, it's because I felt like a burden and I couldn't, and then I always wondered why. And I just realized that I forget how old I was, maybe eight or seven. My mom told me that my grandmother wanted my mom to abort me. So from a young age, I knew that, uh, you know, I, my mom wanted me, but my grandmother for for uh, certain reasons, I uh, thought it would be best for my mom to abort me. And, and I'm, I'm not saying that that's the only reason, but there, I'm sure that there were circumstances uh, while I was in a womb that, um, you know, I was eavesdropping on and picking up on and, um, yes. and, you know, just elevated the cortisol levels. You know, when we talk about environment, you know, we forget that, that our womb is the first environment that we're exposed to and probably the most and you know what the conditions are in there determines or helps to shape how we uh, start to view and navigate the world. So so you, you, at, you know, at the age of 23, you moved to the UK, um, you know, you're, you're starting this new life and what kind of job was it that, what kind of work did you do that you were at, in such conflict with the co-workers? Ah, so um, the first job I got, which was 
my savior was an amazing job, never done it before, was as a receptionist in the hotel. So my English was good enough to start working as a receptionist. And uh, and there was not so much a problem in the beginning because it was a small team. And, you know, I had my problems with English and so on. So, you know, there was a bit of sometimes miscommunication because everyone knew my English was not the best and, and all of that. But um, about two years down the line, when I started progressing in my career and I had to uh, I, my English was a lot better and all of that. That's when I started to realize the conflicts with, um, with the team, with the team and, and not only the team, you know, even with friends, I couldn't sustain a friendship for more than six months. Um, and then it created this habit of having very vague friendships. Then I started to just have, you know, I don't want to get too close to this people because then they don't understand me then I might say things that they get all the hurt and this and that so you know just keep it vague keep it superficial and hence as well a lot of the uh, meeting people one night stands drugs and so on because just keep it vague keep it superficial so you, you mentioned drugs earlier what kind of drugs were we were they some of those prescription <laughs> drugs and street drugs uh give, give us the full uh the full menu here yeah yeah uh, ecstasy was my favorite one and um and it's funny because uh i i've done cocaine and marijuana i've never done um like prescription drugs because in europe it's not like so easy to get those things back in the day especially when it wasn't available online nothing like that um but it was recreative drugs you know so we used to do uh, a marijuana or ashish, um, ecstasy, cocaine. Um, but for me, my favorite one was ecstasy. And why? Why do you think well, my favorite one was ecstasy, Leo? Have a guess. I would assume it gave you the permission to be your, to express yourself fully, to experience the high highs and the low lows that you had been suppressing or had learned to suppress from your childhood. But I've never done yeah. X, so I, I, I don't know. I know. Oh, very good. <laughs> you sounded like an expert. Uh, <laughs> so, and also because is the drug of love. It makes you feel in love with everyone. It makes you feel like you're being loved by everyone. You know, like anyone, when you go out and dance, everyone is in love. And uh, and that was for me my favorite one. I would I exaggerated a little bit on that. <laughs> so you know I, I know that when I look at your website uh, beyondbinging.co.uk, uh, you talk about a five step process. Uh, to, before we get into that five step process, what are things that people do? that are setting them up for failure to, to relapse and go back into binge eating? What do they think that they are doing so right and then it's, it's just setting them up to binge eat all over again? Yeah, I'll give you two very juicy, very good things, which is, one, any type of diet, whether that's no carbs or whether that's calorie counting or whether that's restricting the quantity of food that they eat, whether that's controlling uh, eating just healthy food, not unhealthy food, uh, any restriction, any control, focusing on food is 
the worst, worst, worst thing to do when we are wanting to break free from binge eating. The second juicy one, which is very misleading, is reading books. Oh, I'm reading this book and now I understand. Now I understand this and I understand that. Oh, this book is really good because now I see why this, why that. The thing is, we can learn anything nowadays. You can learn it from YouTube. You can learn it from books. You can learn lots of things. But if it stays just here, it's not useful. It's the integration. For, for our audio listeners, she's pointing to her uh, head. She's, her head, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> if it stays just in the head, it's not enough. We need to integrate it. And sometimes I find it more important, and especially binge eaters, we are, we are emotional people. Well, everyone is emotional people, but we have a problem with emotions. And emotions is energy in motion. So we need to integrate things. We need to get them into our bodies. We need to get them into our physicality. We need to get them into our reality. We need to get them into our own reality. When it's in our heads, and I'm pointing out to my head for the listeners, when it's in our head, that's where it stays. And plus, it stays in our head in the words or in the experience of someone else, the person that wrote the book. Yes, you can learn about you know, the technicalities of binge eating and the carbs and the sugars, blah, 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 all of those things but then doesn't go beyond knowledge. That, that that's, makes so much sense. There's a, a author, Yuval Harari, Yuval Harari, Nuval, um, Noah, Yuval Noah Harari, who wrote the book mm. Sapiens. And um, Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I remember him in an interview, you know, he's, he's a philosopher and, and he's, he's written, uh, you know, some New York Times bestsellers and a great thinker. And the interviewer asked him, you know, what books he's reading. He's like, oh, I just read fiction and watch movies. And the the, the interviewer was so shocked because he thought, you know, Yuval was reading a lot of self-help books and, you know, 12 steps to this and five steps to that. And Yuval said, you know, once you've read one, haven't you read them all? And he goes, I, I find that it's it's much richer to tap into the human experience through fiction. You get a much deeper understanding of of human beings and people, and so it it, it ties into what you're saying. I don't think you're because I'm gonna correct me if I'm wrong. You're not saying don't read books. You're saying in terms of thinking you're gonna find a solution just in some type of self help book. Typically, right. is not enough because it's gonna put you in your head, which is where you were anyway, which is part of the problem. And we need to yeah. get you in your body because. That's where the emotions are. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, exactly that. We need to get them out of the head. And yes, of course, like you said, reading books, knowledge, it's important. Uh, but it comes to a point where we don't need more reading. We don't need to learn more about binge eating. We need to start integrating the things that we learn. And that's the, the part where most of us struggle. Because look, if... To learn how to be a millionaire, I just needed to learn a book, I would be already a millionaire, right? <laughs> like most of us. If to learn to build um, 
what do you call the things that go to the moon? I forgot the name. Uh, oh, spaceships, rocket ships. Yeah, yeah. If to build a spaceship, you just need to read the book, then Elon Musk would have already built, I don't know how many, but he didn't. What he had to do, he had to get his hands into one and build it experientially with his hands and brains and teamwork and you know help from other people and studying and all of those things combined, right? So the, the worst part to, to break free from binge eating is I'll just read a book and I'm reading so much and I'm learning so much and I'm sure I'm going to be free uh, from binge eating if I read all these books. Oh, I'm not going to eat uh, any more chocolate. I'm, I'm going to, I don't have any biscuits at home. I don't have any temptations at home and my binge eating will stop. No, unfortunately, it's not like that. So when someone comes to you and and binge eating is their issue, what, what's your first step in helping them address that? Well, the first thing is to really acknowledge all the things they are ashamed of. Because in my view, you cannot deal with something that you have no clue that it's happening. And that's why in my progress, in my journey, in my understanding of my problems and my struggles, until I was not really face-to-face with it, seeing it in the mirror or seeing myself in the mirror until I kept saying that it was other people's fault, until I kept saying that it was my colleague or my manager or my work or the weather or uh, my housemate or my mom or my sister, until I kept pointing the finger at what was happening outside of my life, I would not progress. I was stuck. I was stuck. So the first thing is we're going to work on let it out. Let everything out. There's no limits here. Just let's put everything out and let's let life be the mirror for you. Let others be the mirror for you. Let it show the things we need to work on. And it's never ending like you, Leo. You're still working on, on whatever things you have to work. And me too. It's never ending. And that's the good thing about this, this progress and this project of life, which is you are always learning, always learning. It's so beautiful. It's like uh, I was watching uh, the Marie Kondo uh, docu-series on Netflix, and the first thing she has people do is throw everything on the bed. She's like, we, mm. we, and then and then we'll sort through it. But if it's all in the closet, as in if it's all in your head, then it's really hard to to know where to start from and what you have. So let's throw it all on a bed. And it sounds like that's what you're saying is like, okay, let's let's who are we blaming here? Who are we shaming? What are let's let's just let's just dump it all out here at once, and then we can move on to. Uh, and then it also sounds like accepting responsibility for our lives. Yeah. So it's it's the the whole acknowledging the shame and accepting responsibility uh for it. But but I love that idea of because you know, I think that we tend to demonize so many things and what I love about your first step is that you're allowing for space to blame. Like it's okay to point fingers, right? Point all the fingers, yell at everybody that you're going to yell at. And then when we're done and we've exhausted that, now let's look at our part in it. Is They do the same thing in couples therapy of like, okay, you can blame each other, 
But okay, now what was your part in the interaction and how things turned out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's actually one of the the first shifts that I mentioned in the um, in the five shifts to the five steps to break free is the taking ownership. Because you know, binge eating happens in secrecy, binge eating happens behind doors, we are hiding, we don't tell anyone, we don't even tell our partners, we don't tell our parents, happens behind doors. And the first thing is we're gonna have to own it. It might not mean we have to go and say to people, but of course, if we have a husband, if we're living with a with our mom or someone close, yes, we should talk about it. And it doesn't mean if you don't have anyone around, doesn't mean you're going to go to your work colleagues and say, you know, I have a problem. Okay, maybe that's not the ideal situation, but taking ownership to ourselves and say, I really have here a serious problem with binge eating or with feeling lonely or with numbing myself, whatever is coming up, doesn't matter the words, but it's the ownership is taking the responsibility. And that's usually where suddenly we just clear a lot of crap, a lot of crap out of our brain, which is full of crap. We clear everything and suddenly we now start to have a little bit of space to go like, all right, now, where do I go from here? And then we start to create the path. And the path is different from for each person. And there is no one, one solution fits all because I think that's a bit uh, dangerous because we start to eliminate potential people that will break free from, from binge eating because we're giving one solution for every single person. But the, the grand... The grand or the the big picture, the the grand scenario is find your own path with the help of others. I don't believe in doing things alone. It doesn't work for me. I don't think that's how why human beings are in this earth. I think we are here to work collectively and to work with each other and help each other. So for me, I'm a big big. Um, uh, what do you call it? I forgot the word. I don't know if you. I'm a big uh, uh, advocate, leader proponent, or, proponent, yeah, yeah, advocate. advocate. Yes, <laughs> exactly, advocate. I'm a big advocate of working together as a group. We together as a group find the path that is going to lead us to freedom. We do the work, of course, in ourselves, letting go, putting everything out there. Okay, this happened, that happened. Let's face it. Let's put ourselves in front of the mirror. Let others in the group be our mirror and show to us what happens to us that happens to them. Let's recognize that we are all the same. No one here has done things that you haven't done. We've all done crappy things. We've all regret. And let's use the power of groups, the power of people connecting to heal. That for me is huge. So who was that person for you, right? Who who did you go to on that, in terms of uh, helping you on that, that path to healing? So for me, unfortunately, back in the day, I didn't have one person. I had several things that I've done and hence why now I am doing what I'm doing in a format that it feels almost like a lot of people doing uh, helping but it's one 
program, let's say. A few things that I've done. So I did started yoga, hot yoga, like you, Leo. Started hot yoga. And I leaned in into the yoga classes, group classes, big classes, lots of people to feel connected so I wouldn't feel lonely and to get into my body and get exhausted and feel my muscles and connected to my breath. Hot yoga, then meditation. And meditation was tough. I struggled. I struggled, but I persevered and I kept going because I, I was like, you know, if I don't do something about it, no one is going to help me. So I have to figure out a way. Meditation. Did uh, lots of um, self-development courses like CBT, anger management. And I would just be looking for these things. You know, I was like, okay, what can I do? What else can I do? What else can I do? And then um, my manager was huge, super important, that helped me in getting back to work and allowed me go back to work, do my mess ups, take some time off, go back to work, do my mess ups. And friends, had really good friends that stuck with me throughout the process and supported me. And uh, and then it was just, I just kept going, just kept going, you know, finding different things I could do, uh, mentor people that I could listen to, go to seminars, go to uh, programs, do programs that would help me figure out this, uh, a better way to live, a better way to live. And um, so basically now in the position that I have, I created this, this program that has all of that in one rather than going all different ways. I love that it, it, because, you know, I was going to ask you, you know, if you're going to these seminars and workshops, I assume there's a lot of reading to be done, but it sounds like if we're going to do self-help reading, then it's more effective to do it in groups and workshops where you're not just getting the information, you're getting the human connection you're getting the bonding you're getting the community you're building friendships and networks and you're 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 realizing that you're not the only one doing this because i think a lot of times and i would even imagine this for my podcast is that there are people who listen to this podcast in secrecy they're ashamed that um you know they have to that they're listening to a suicide prevention podcast and what will their friends think and I would, I would assume the same thing would be for, if, you know, if you have bought a book on binge eating, you're like, oh, am I the only one reading this? I don't want, I won't want somebody to see me buying this book. But when you're in a class or a group of 50 or 100 or, you know, Tony Robbins is, I don't know, like yeah. thousands of people showing up, that's what you're paying for, that oxytocin, that ecstasy, yeah. that, that, that jubilation. And then those memories stick in your in your tissue, right? Because it's visceral, it's emotional versus sitting down to read something in solitude. Yeah, and also most, uh, one of the things that I've done that got me really frustrated was counseling for more than a year. So when I, when I got to the point where I was like, this is not normal. I cannot be eating like this. Something is not quite right. I, um, I reached out to the... Uh, like the health plan that we had at work. And I said, look, I, something is not quite right with me. I'm eating like this. It's been so many years, blah, blah, blah. Is there anything that you have that can help me? So then they, they recommend, recommended me to some counseling and therapy and so on. 
And for more than a year, I would go there once a week and talk to this person and tell what I've done and what I didn't do and how I felt, blah, blah, blah. And that's it. And um, it was didn't do anything, didn't really improve. And I, at the end, when I kind of overcame the depression, I even <laughs> called the counselor and the therapist and I had an argument with her and say, look, I was going there for more than a year and I got to this point where I even wanted to disappear from my life. Why didn't you help me? I feel bad now because I actually took on her, but it's not her fault. It's fault of the system. You know, that's what they have to offer. And what I found the most important thing for me was all those things that I was doing, group trainings, hot yoga, meditation, they all had a group. I was not yet doing meditation by myself at home. I was going almost every single day to a Tibet, Tibetan center and, uh, or Buddhist center, something like that in the south of London and meditating with other people. For me, the group and the energy of people going through similar things, different things, but also finding some healing in that modality was what for me helped me overcome. Not the being by myself, trying to figure out by myself or going to a therapist, just listening to me, not really giving me something for me to grasp on or I don't know, it was really strange. And uh, and the group for me content is huge. I am one of the big trainings I've done was a yoga teacher training, five weeks intense. And most people think that for yoga, you just go and learn the poses. And yes, you kind of learn some yoga poses, but there's a lot more going on. And in that yoga teacher training, I had, I had no idea I was going to go through what I went through. For me, I thought I was going to learn how to teach warrior one, down dogs, you know, all of these things. But the reality is that yoga is not about the poses. So I suddenly realized, oh, we are doing this work. Okay, because we had to do the deep work. What's going on? What are you saying to yourself? Who are you blame for? Blah, 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 all of these things. So then I go like, no, I think I don't want to be here. And my teacher goes like, no, <laughs> you're not allowed to leave now. You need to do the work. and. Uh, I cried and I cried and I did the work and that was the best thing because there was other people doing the work. There was other people going through the same. There was other people you could relate to. And I felt so at ease to have my breakdown, to cry, to let it out. Even my depression, I was hiding for a long, long time. I was hiding that I had the depression, that I tried to kill myself, all of those things. And in there, I opened up because I didn't feel judged. And for me, that has a power of liberation because now I don't have all that poison that I'm hiding from myself and hiding from everyone else inside of me, poisoning even more, uh, piling up with the shame and the guilt from binge eating and the regret from all the crap that I've done from the one night stands from the drugs, everything. Now I opened and the venom and the poison starts to release. And that for me is super important. I love that. And, and so we shared the first step. What's the second step in your five-step process for helping those uh, manage their binge eating? 
Yeah, so I've already touched lightly here, which is food is not the problem. Yeah, so that's one of the steps. Stop worrying about food. Stop thinking about calorie counting and all that. That's not the problem because many, many people do diets for all their lives. And then the day that they cannot do diet or they stop diet, they are back into the binge eating. So that's the second one. Food is not the problem. Food is not the problem. Yeah, they say that in my uh, in my um, meeting is that uh, you know food is not the solution. And yes, now that well. you're saying it, I it it connects more. They've been saying that for years, and I was like, what? And now, and now that you shared it after sharing your story, I'm like, oh, okay, I, I get it now. It, it, and that's how, that's sometimes how long it takes to receive a message. You know, mm-hmm. something seems so simple. And it could just take time and years. And so what's the third step? The third step is the gap. It's what I call the gap method. And the gap is a process we learn where we get to a point where there is a gap between thinking, I want to binge, and the action. So the thought and the action. And... As human beings, we have that potential. It's almost like the matrix. We are able to see ourselves in this slow movement, slow mode, where we are aware, I want to binge, I want to stuff myself with food, I want to pile up all the food in my plate. But then there is this space that allows us to go like, hmm, do I really want that? Uh, but I actually don't want to binge. I want to stop the binging. So I'm not going to binge. Or actually, I want to binge today. So I'm just going to binge. Whatever it is, doesn't matter the decision. The most important thing is the gap. The more we are able to have this gap, the more often in the day, the more, the longer we are able to sustain it, the more freedom we have from binge eating, and so many other things, you know. I'll give you another example. In the case of me that I was very angry and I would be very sharp at work and I would answer my colleagues, sometimes not very nice and all of that. If I, at the time, was able to have the gap before being uh, sharp, before answering in ways that are very defensive and starts to create bad atmosphere between colleagues, If I had the gap, I would have chosen not to answer that way because we all know that, you know, answering in a sharp way, it's not going to help the situation. But the problem is that as human beings, we are constantly, and most of us, we are constantly in in this fight or flight situation where it's like, that's it, let's get it done. Okay, let's go, blah, 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 blah. And we have lost this space between thinking and acting. And that's why so many misunderstandings and arguments and fights, you know, road rage, all of those things happened. We've lost the gap. And that's the, for me, the most important component as well. Yeah. Victor Frankl talks about that between stimulus and response. There is, uh, you know, a space for, for transformation and, and that thinking has helped me in so many different scenarios, not just with eating, but like you said, in reacting and road rage and 
breaking down and you know just catastrophizing a situation and and for the and so what I love about it and, and cor- please correct me if I'm wrong but uh, it sounds like you're allowing for the space to binge uh, if that uh, is is uh, in your place versus a lot of programs um, you know don't allow space for that they 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 yeah. will punish you or some in some cases I've heard people being dropped by their sponsors for you know falling off the wagon so can you speak more about that yeah so uh here it's not about what you do but it's more about what you are conscious of what we want is to rebuild the muscle of being conscious of every action okay you binged don't worry tomorrow is another day we can start again as long as we are building the muscle of being conscious of the choices we are doing. Because very often, well, not very often, all the time, we binge because we are completely unconscious. We're running on automatic or we're running on our emotions. We are not. The amount of times we binge and then we go like, oh, my God, how, can, how did I binge all of these? How did I eat all of these? Oh, I didn't even realize I ate so much. Oh, oh, so because we are completely unconscious and what we want with the gap method or with the process is to build the muscle of being conscious. The more we are conscious, the more we raise our conscious decisions, the less we will do it because when we are conscious, we don't do things to hurt ourselves. When we are completely aware that we want to binge, we'll go like, but binge makes me feel horrible. Binge makes me feel sick. Binge makes me feel sad. Binge makes me bloat. Binge makes me swallow, you know, uh, I mean, go uh, like balloon, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. So if we uh, are aware that we want to binge and we're going to binge and the effects of binge and all of those and the feelings and so on and aware why we want to binge, then we're less likely to binge. Yeah, one of the things that I do after I binge is I write down how it makes me feel and how much I spent on it and the amount of time. Like when I think about the amount of time it takes me to go to the store to get my binge foods and then the amount of money that I'm spending. And I'm like, okay, if if I multiply that times 30 days, then technically I just worked four days to, to pay for Oreos. You know, like that kind of yes. thing. Um, yeah. And so like that, and, and in that way, raising my level of, of consciousness, do you have steps for people? Uh, does, uh, first, two questions. It sounds like the GAP method, is that an acronym, GAP, G-A-P? And then second question is, how do you help people raise their level of consciousness uh, after they binge or, or, you know, how do they fill that space? Yeah. So gap is just the word gap, like a space. Yeah. So it's not, not an acronym. acronym. Um, so to raise consciousness or to, to be more conscious and less unconscious, to build the muscle, to practice the muscle of being conscious, it's a process that we do through different things. We connect more with our bodies. We connect more with our emotions. And that's an option through journaling to talking about it, to sharing, to being 
more grateful for what we have rather than talking about what we don't have, all of those things, right? And, uh, and we are building the muscle of being conscious and being in that moment where we know what we are doing and we know why we are doing. And that's the process we build through different techniques. You know, you, you, just one simple thing if your listeners want to do, and this works for anyone, whether you're struggling with binge eating or not. You might even be someone working from home that struggles with uh, being stuck in the computer, working for many, many hours. And then when they stop, they feel heavy. They feel uh, in, lots of tension in their body, in their head, because they just spend three, four hours in front of the computer, not moving their bodies, not drinking water, not anything. Uh, grab uh, your phone, put a reminder in your phone every 45 minutes or an hour or even half an hour if you want, a reminder to breathe. And when I mean breathe, you literally stop whatever you're doing. Okay, if you're on the phone with someone, finish the call and then stop. Sit back on your chair, close your eyes and take about five or six deep breaths. And just this, didn't want to interrupt you, Leo, but good, good. Thank you for, uh, just these five or six breaths interrupts the running on unconscious, right? Because whether we are driving, whether we are working, cooking, talking to someone, binge eating, drinking, taking drugs, we are running on unconscious. We are doing it out of habit doing it because we are going for that to cover up for something else, right? The stopping that in whichever way you want, whether that's doing a few breaths or that's getting out of the house for a walk around the, 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 the block, whether that's um, doing some stretches with your body, leaving the, the desk, uh, it's going to break. And every time we break the subconscious, we are just building more the muscle to be conscious. And when you're conscious, you make better choices for everything. You don't, you choose better the words you're going to say to the person that you're talking to so they don't get hurt by what we're going to say. You have a better conversation with your partner if maybe things are getting a little bit heated up, you know, an argument heated up with a partner. You have a better conversation with your colleague at work. You choose better the food you're going to eat. You choose maybe instead of watching Netflix to read the book, all of those things. I, and it, I, and it, it's, I was going to say, it sounds uh, easy. It's not easy, but it's simple. It's simple. Sometimes we just want to complicate a lot and we want to get all these techniques, but actually... It's less complicated than people make it to be. It's simple, but not so easy because no one teaches this. We are not taught these things in school. And as grown-ups, we are having to learn things we should have learned when we were kids. Yeah, it, it definitely is unfortunate that we do think the more complicated um, the, uh, something is, then the more effective it is. You know, people are trying to multiply their protein. Is it 0.5% of my body weight, mass index, blah, blah, blah. And, and that gets challenging right there. 
Yeah. Uh, I know we're short, running short on time. So can you uh, please, uh, the last two steps, uh, four and five, and then uh, where can people find you? Yeah, so the next one is practice. Practice, practice, practice. You know, most of us have been binge eaters for 20 years. Most of us realize that we've been binge eaters pretty much all our lives, especially from the moment our parents stop controlling what we eat, because then we can just eat whatever we want. So then freedom. We just want to eat, 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 right? So practice, 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 because 20 years of binge eating is not going to go in a week, is not going to go in a few days or in a few hours. And it might go, it, you might start to do the first few steps in a few weeks. But then you still need to keep the practice going for a little bit longer. For me, it's been eight years and I haven't binged for a good, I don't know, four or five years, probably even more. Um, so practice, practice, practice is the most important thing. Uh, and it's going to help in a lot of other areas in our lives, not just binge eating. The more we practice this conscious, being conscious muscle, the better. And then the second one is find someone to help you. It is not a journey to be alone or to do it alone. It is not. Simply it is not. You know, even uh, great athletes that run for the Olympics and run the 400 meter or whatever it is alone, uh, they run alone, but they don't do it alone. <laughs> you know, they need a coach. They need the physio. They need this. They need that. They need a family. They need a friend. You know, no one does anything alone. And if people think they're going to overcome binge eating alone, it's not possible. Even I could not do it alone. I went out to look for different types of help. So doing it with a coach, doing it with someone that knows the ins and outs, doing it with someone that knows exactly what's going to happen, how it's going to help you, it's going to support you, it's going to know the ups and downs you're going to go through, it's going to know the struggles you're going to go through, that's the way to, to overcome. I love it. And how can people reach out to you and work with you? Yeah, so I am on Facebook, Beyond Binging, and uh, on beyondbinging.co.uk. Um, anyway, if you Google my name, Benedita Souza, you'll probably find lots of things about me, uh, even when I used to work in hotels, <laughs> um, my previous life. And um, and I'm, I'm launching my YouTube channel soon, Beyond Binging as well, very simple. So, um, and and that's it. Well, I'm excited for that. I see you have a wedding ring on. So congratulations on, I'm assuming, the marriage. <laughs> yes, it's been uh, scheduled for quite a few years now. <laughs> oh, it's an engagement ring. Oh, yes. Yeah, I think it's engagement. Is it in the wrong finger? I don't know. <laughs> no, no, that's the right finger. That's 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 the right finger. <laughs> but uh, but you're one, reminding right. him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, and then last question, because and I ask this of all my guests. As always, imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them? There is a way out. There is a way out. There's something out there. There's someone out there that can help you to figure it out. I know you want to come out of this. I know you don't want to do that. I know that you want to find a solution. So don't give up. Don't 
do that thing you want to do. Keep going. You're going to find the solution. Reach out to Leo. Reach out to me, whichever, whoever, because there is a way. Thank you so much, Benedita Souza. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help, for you calling the 1-800-SUICIDE or 1-800-273-TALKS or any of the other international phone numbers. If you live in Portugal, Spain, China, UK, Chile, wherever you live in the world, there are phone numbers for you. You can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Benny. No, thank you, Leo. It's been a pleasure. I'm so grateful. And thank you for the work you do. It's a super important subject to talk about. So thank you. I'm super grateful. Thank you.